Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. Now this episode came out at the very end of 2020, which means we're wrapping up the first year of Ocean Impact Organization's public existence. It's been an incredible year and it's been wonderful to celebrate in the last couple of weeks all that we have achieved. Particularly proud of this podcast, which is now going to end the year with 36 episodes published. I hope you've enjoyed them. Before we get stuck into 2021, it would be wonderful to have all of you folks out there saying something nice about the podcast. Consider it a little holiday gift for Nick and I to tell some more people about the podcast. The numbers are great, but we think with a little bit of support, the reviews that you can all submit, we can help to reach more passionate listeners who are driven to help Planet Ocean. In this episode of the podcast, we speak with Jess Melbourne Thomas, who has perhaps one of the most interesting job titles I've heard. She is a knowledge broker at the CSIRO. She was the 2020 Tasmanian Australian of the Year winner. She's a superstar of STEM. She's an IPCC lead author. And she talks about her story in growing up in Tasmania, a place that is suffering a lot of devastating impact as a result of warming waters associated with climate change. What's that doing to beautiful, pristine kelp forests that she's been diving in since she was a teenager? And talks all about the wonderful work that she's been doing, heading down to Antarctica and all sorts of experiences she's had along the way. We really respect all that Jess has done for Planet Ocean and hope that you get a lot out of this episode of the Ocean Impact Podcast. Very pleased to have on the podcast today, Dr. Jessica Melbourne Thomas. Uh, who is a research scientist and knowledge broker for the CSIRO. She's been a superstar of STEM, a Tasmanian of the year. Her bio and credentials are quite significant, but we're going to dive into that today. Uh, how are you, Jess? I'm really well. Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate your time on the podcast today. I'm sure we're going to have a conversation that covers lots of different fields and areas, and people are going to find it really inspiring. But why don't we start where I like to start, which is at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about you and particularly your love for the ocean and for wild places. Yep, absolutely. I'd love to talk about that. So I grew up in Tassie, exploring all our magnificent wild places uh, near the water, under the water, and also up in the mountains. Um, my brother, who's also a marine scientist, tells a story that I actually don't remember, but it's probably true that Dad used to hold us upside down by our feet and dunk us in rock pools. <laughs> with goggles or without goggles? Yeah, with, yeah, with mask and stuff. That's so cute. <laughs> but we both learnt to, I mean, we did lots of snorkelling when I was a kid and then we both learnt to um, scuba dive with my dad and have dived as a family for as long as I can remember. So that's that was pretty special and I think um, was, you know, formative in terms of me developing my love for the ocean and, and ending up following a career in that field. I'm the same actually in that my earliest experiences 
with the marine aside from it splashing against my legs was rock pools and just this entire universe opening up before my eyes so maybe take us to some more of those memories that you hold about early experiences in the ocean yeah so i guess some of the the most memorable ones are from you know when i was old enough to actually scuba dive um and to be kind of enveloped in that amazing world I, I had to wait my brother's two years younger than me so I had to wait till he was old enough before I was allowed to learn so this is around when I was 16 so not kind of you know not a tiny person <laughs> experiencing that environment but um you know we, we just have some stunning sites to dive in in Tassie we have some of the best underwater cave systems in the southern hemisphere and exploring those and discovering um, all the amazing marine life is really memorable um giant kelp forests diving through those um if you haven't I don't know if you've dived in a kelp forest but it's like you know it's like you're flying through a, a real forest and the the birds around you are the fish and you're weightless and the incredible effects of the light so I you know th those things are, are, are just so much part of who I am um and then going on to dive um in tropical locations haven't dived in Antarctica have um maybe that's a story for later have fallen into the water through the ice in Antarctica but <laughs> had all the right equipment <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had the pleasure of diving there but yeah lots of very special memories now obviously the the kelp forests in Tasmania are hugely at risk and many have been lost tell us a little bit about the kelp forest now compared to when you were a 16 year old diving and what they might be like into the future yeah, so I think um, the latest estimates are that about 95% of the kelp forests have been lost from the east coast of Tassie, and it's a it's a complex story that is is related to climate change. So it's partly that as the warmer waters from the East Australian current extend further south to Tasmania, those those water conditions aren't as ideal for kelp, um, but also um, the extension of those warmer waters means that the larvae of our long spine sea urchins can survive down here and so we've seen large increases in populations of those urchins which uh, eat eat the kelp um, and then can maintain this really different environment where it's it's they, they talk about urchin barrens which is just bare rocks um, and the kelp isn't able to grow back and then the other complicating part of that story is that the only natural predators for those urchins are really big rock lobster and um, because that's the size range that's been targeted by um, fishing efforts historically it means that there's less stuff around to eat urchins but the, I mean the good news part of that is that that does give us options to try to manage the decline of the kelp um, but but I think that given how much the environment has changed it's it's almost impossible to see um, a recovery, to, you know, to the extent of the kelp forests that were there historically, and and even you know the kind of um, experiences that I had when I was growing up seeing those forests. How does that make you feel? Because often when we think about the projections of the impacts of climate change, we we romanticise that oh it's going to happen beyond the time scale of my own lives and. It's not until we sort of speak to people who have this real world example of, no, you don't understand, I've seen it change in the last decade or two decades. So how does that make, make you feel and do you use that as a way to harness your enthusiasm for creating change? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a, um, 
a, a powerful personal story and it's certainly one that I use, um, you know, when I talk about the impacts of climate change to broader audiences. And I think the other one that people relate to is the changes that we're seeing for the Great Barrier Reef and for coral reefs worldwide and just how quickly that's happened, um, how difficult it will be to reverse that change and the fact that, you know, from my personal perspective, um, my children will never see a Great Barrier Reef the way it was um, when I was able to dive on it. So, so there's the personal um, aspect too. I think you know, it is also an important reflection of the fact that the ocean does play such a key role in the climate change story and that, you know, it um, it is the most significant, plays the most significant role in taking up excess heat and carbon dioxide. And so that means that the changes that we're already seeing are uh, in some ways most pronounced in the ocean. And yet that's kind of a little bit out of sight, out of mind. So, so helping people to connect to that reality in an environment that they might not directly experience, I think is an important challenge in terms of talking about climate change. Yes, and certainly the key motivation um, behind Nick and I and the team at, at Ocean Impact Organisation is this you know, messaging around planet ocean. And if we can get everyone to consider the ocean in the decisions that we make every day, then we can start to make some decisions that are really going to be for the benefit in the long term because of all that inertia that's built into the, the changes that the oceans are experiencing. Let's go a little bit to obviously those experiences, wild places, diving, filled you with obviously wonder and amazement at the ocean. When did you know you wanted to study and have an academic career and obviously work in science and STEM? Um. Not early from, from what I remember in my um, school years. I, you know, I have very few memories of, um, of science classes at high school, for instance, and it was, it was much more for me at that stage about art and language and literature. Um, and, and then, then it, um, in year 11 and 12, um, I had some really excellent science teachers and I think that was probably the, the point where it clicked that that was something that I was going to want to pursue so um you know and I think having that mixed kind of background it wasn't you know I didn't write when I was four I want to be a marine biologist and then that you know that was set in stone <laughs> um, but that's been a good thing because some of those other things like debating and public speaking have been really important skills that have been a core part of what I do right through my career yeah. Yeah. You're a brilliant communicator. I haven't had to debate with you yet, but I'm sure you're good at that too. <laughs> I frequently lose against my two-year-old. <laughs> okay. So tell us a little bit about then that academic journey. Um, it obviously started in Tasmania, but took you all the way to Oxford where you were a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah. So I was very fortunate to have that opportunity. Um, and you know that and the oxford experiences again open so many different doors um one of my um claim to fame is the wrong word but <laughs> i i i my i had a mixed experience as a road scholar i didn't um it was an amazing opportunity but i found it very difficult to fit in there um and i i dropped out so i'm a, along with um Richard Flanagan, who also is another, <laughs> is a well-known dropout road scholar, apparently. <laughs> um, I didn't finish my degree. Um, I, I came back to Tassie and um, worked 
in a scuba diving shop and was a dive bum for a few years and wondered whether academia was really for me. Um, and then very fortunately had the chance to take up a PhD with someone who I'd worked with before and, and that and that kind of, I guess, relaunched things and I found my feet again. But um, yeah, it was a, a different kind of experience for me, the Oxford one. Yeah, well, I know one from my personal experience is um, just doing a Bachelor of Science, but then desperately needing to go and do a Bachelor of Life, which for me was going surfing. So for you, it was going to work in a dive shop. <laughs> sometimes you just need to recalibrate and get a yeah, bit of time right. yeah. to sort yeah. everything out. Absolutely. So what about your PhD and, and your areas of, of interest in academic research and studies? Tell us a little bit about what you've done and, and what you're really focused on into the future. Yeah, so I guess I've been really lucky in lots of ways um, having the opportunity to work kind of right from the tropics to the poles. Um, and so my PhD um, was on, on coral reef ecosystems and I worked in uh, Mexico and the Philippines and Indonesia, um, which was amazing. Um, and I guess kind of sparked my interest in um, it, what we talk about as social ecological systems, so not just the biology, but also how that linked to people that depend on um, those ecosystems. Uh, and then after my PhD, I'd always wanted to, I did my work experience in year nine, I think at the Australian Antarctic Division. And so my dream job was to to work there. And I was very lucky to, to get a job with the Antarctic Division and, um, and, and so had the opportunity to go to Antarctica. Um, and um, and then more recently had this new opportunity come up with CSIRO where um, I've kind of been able to draw the threads of the different things that that interested me and that I thought were important together. So it's been, yeah, aside from the, the brief um, stopover at the dive shop, <laughs> um, it's been a, it's been a really, uh, I've been very lucky in the pathway that I've been able to take so far. Great. Well, I want to get to Antarctica very soon, but maybe just dive a little bit deeper into your current role. I've never met a knowledge broker before I met you. So tell us a little bit about yeah, your current work and, and what you focus on. Yeah. So, so to be totally honest, I'm, I'm still figuring it out <laughs> to some degree. Um, and so the, the knowledge broker role is a little bit different from, you know, we, we think a lot about science communication and I think it's wonderful to see science communication um, becoming more of a thing and and um, and knowledge brokering is is like that but is um, more about um, translation of, of science to the people that that need it in order to, to make decisions or to um, make change and then equally um, it, making it a two-way process, so you, so helping to bring that knowledge that a, an end user or a stakeholder has back into the research process. And so, you know, there are a whole range of these other non-science knowledge sources that are really important in terms of um, science having a more effective outcomes. You know, our traditional model, right, is do some science in a laboratory or on a computer, write a paper in a peer-reviewed journal, have it published and sit there and hope that somebody that needs that science might pick it up and use it. And um, given the urgency of so many of the problems in the world now, that that model is not really going to cut it. Um, and so we we need better ways to en engage people and, and spark their interest and help them see the value in science, which is, I think, science communication, but also um, pathways to translate 
that information into a form that's useful and make sure that we're doing science um, that addresses the problems that are there. So you mentioned obviously getting it in the hands, um, the right information, the right format to um, decision makers and, and many other entities. Um, a question off the cuff here, but I suppose that role of commercialising science for impact, and that's obviously, you know, alluding to what OIO's mission is in that if we can stimulate um, entrepreneurs and startups to build businesses that are regenerative and create a positive impact on the ocean, then we can really start to further the great um, progress on the great challenges. What do you see in respect to science and, and commercialisation and that mixture between academia and, I suppose, progressing business? Yeah, um, that's a fantastic question. And, you know, and we could probably talk for a whole another hour about that. <laughs> um, I think one area particularly where where that's going to be increasingly important into the future is for the, you know, what we talk about is the blue economy. Um, and so, you know, Australia um, is the blue economy, ocean economy is particularly important for Australia and the kind of, of the kinds of opportunities that are going to open up in the ocean environment, I think for Australia particularly, will be very important things like offshore renewable energy, offshore aquaculture, um, you know, integrated technologies, moving towards um, sustainable food production systems. I think that is an area where um, that that integration of um, of, of science and, and business and industry and technology is going to be increasingly important. Mm, and there's the, the Blue Economy Cooperative Research Centre um, based in Launceston, correct? So right, yeah. putting yeah. Tasmania on the map for <laughs> progressing the blue economy. Yeah. Okay, do you want to dive into Antarctica and tell us a little <laughs> bit about your experiences? I think you went there for the first time in 2013, am I right? And how many yeah. times have you been there? Tell us all about Antarctica. <laughs> I can try. I have only been once, so I, right. I I went the once, and then I had babies, and um, and it's you know it's difficult to <laughs> to juggle being a mum and um and and typically you know stints in Antarctica are for quite long periods of time. So I hope to go back again. I was lucky, but you know it was um it was a two and a half month voyage. That I was on in working in the sea ice environment, so kind of very immersed um, in that Antarctic experience. Um, immersed, yeah. as in like locked in the sea ice and you couldn't leave. So <laughs> yeah, we did get stuck. We got stuck for a couple of weeks. It's not uncommon. <laughs> we ran out of coffee, um, which you know almost caused a mutiny. But <laughs> is there any like marine creatures that can be a substitute for coffee? If they are, they would have been targeted by everyone. <laughs> So yeah, so that was um, that was on a like a multidisciplinary um, research cruise, and and was a really fantastic opportunity to to kind of dive into the the, the fieldwork side. Um, and I'd, I'd I'd love to have the opportunity again at some. What stage. were some of the memorable experiences? What really um, yeah, tell us a little bit about just that experience of of stepping foot on the ice of Antarctica, and and obviously all those experiences. Yeah, uh, it's cold. <laughs> um, so I so I talked before about having fallen in the water, and when so we were stuck in the sea ice, and we kind of just had to wait for a lead to open up so we could get back out. But we were still going out onto the ice every day to do our science. And one, it was a, this incredibly 
beautiful sunny day, a, a minke whale, which is like a one of the smaller species of um, whales in the Southern Ocean, popped its head through a, a small gap to breathe and it hung around for oh, easily half an hour and we were able to be quite close and take photos and things and um, I, I got a bit too dis- excited and distracted and I stepped on a thin patch of ice and I just went straight through into freezing cold water underneath. Um, but, the, you know, now I can tell the story that I've swum with a minke whale in Antarctica. Um. <laughs> but we all know the truth now because yeah. you just divulged it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was memorable. Yeah. Um, what else? What other sort of wildlife encounters? What were some of the, um, yeah, the real highlights from that particular expedition? Uh, penguins are very curious. I don't know if you've seen those those photos on social. Only in the surf, but. Uh... Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, you know, they come right up to check out what you're doing and inspect and check out the equipment and, you know, just generally hang about and... <laughs> So, um, so that was pretty cool, and uh, lots and lots of we saw lots of crab eater seals. They're um, pretty amazing to watch, uh, and they, you know, make the most of. We were drilling holes in the ice and things, so they'd make the most of, you know, being able to pop up and pop up through those holes. And yeah, yeah, and you know, just the the scenery generally and the different ice forms and the the light effects and um, really surreal and and stunning. And what about some of the science you were performing down there and, and what was um, yeah, what was the focus and, and why was that so important at the time and, and for obviously the future? So my work um, on the, the Southern Ocean and for Antarctica was in um, marine ecosystem modelling. So I kind of have a background that integrates maths and, um, and ecosystem science to develop tools that can be used to... Uh, project how ecosystems might change in the future under climate change, but also to support decision-making for things like fisheries management. Um, so there's, you know, a general perception that modellers, you know, don't do field work, but we, <laughs> we sit in front of computers. But, um, but being having the opportunity to, to, to be in the real system that you're trying to represent, you know, in this mathematical model I think is really critical um, and also I was looking particularly on that voyage at um, at uh, algae growing in the sea ice so um, sea ice in Antarctica has this fundamental role in terms of supporting the ecosystem um, and also important links to, to climate more generally um, but it's a home to this incredible diversity of life actually microscopic life and the, the algae grows in the ice and also underneath it, and then that provides food for zooplankton and krill um, that then supports things higher up in the food chain. So understanding um, where and how that algae grows and how that might change in the future is actually really important in terms of us making predictions about how the ecosystems might change. I remember um, in, I think it was a video, I don't know how long ago it was, but you spoke about the, about the total catch of krill in the Southern Ocean, Antarctica, and it was astounding the the figure. It was something like eleven percent of the of the, the total catch quota of the world was being uh, absorbed by krill in the Southern Ocean. Do you recall that? And is that, <laughs> that still the case? Um, so krill, so it, the population of krill is massive, and it's all around the Southern Ocean. I think it's the um, by biomass, it's the you know largest. Um, 
single species um, uh, um, sorry I'm not very good with statistics you've got <laughs> Statistics don't stick in my head, but um, but the quill biomass is very high. It's one of the largest for these kind of small invertebrates, and it, it it's possible that krill will be fundamentally important in um, in supporting global food security in the future. It's, it's a massive resource there, um, and as stocks reduce in other areas, we may increasingly depend on food from the Southern Ocean, um, particularly because as waters warm, a lot of stuff is moving south as well, so we will see new fish stocks emerge. Um, and the krill, because um, it's difficult to collect data in the Southern Ocean, um, and also because... Um, management of fisheries in that region um, is through an international commission that in lots of ways is kind of um, world standard for ecosystem-based management. Um, the management of krill fishing is is precautionary, right? So with limited information, we, we opt for the, the safest route. And so I think the statistics that you are recur referring to is the um, the potential overall catch limit for Antarctic krill um, but at the moment we only harvest a tiny proportion of that because um, there's a need to better integrate data in terms of how fishing activity on krill might affect the rest of the ecosystem and also how that might change with climate change so yes krill are very important for a whole bunch of reasons and likely to be more important um, and I can't remember the, the statistics without having them in front of me and I didn't prepare. Well, that's, that's, um... <laughs> That is reassuring, I guess, because I think people, particularly, you know, the lay person is going to imagine that, you know, krill, um, albeit massive biomass, we we can, we think about those whales and this important feedstock for them and many other um, cascading organisms, and to think that we're we're harvesting it for a for a, a krill um, supplement in people's lives that perhaps they don't need is is where I guess I was mm. leading that conversation. So. What about in terms of any other pressures that you're particularly concerned about um, on the Southern Ocean and Antarctica? Is there other, you know, human practices and commercial practices down there that, um, that really concern you? Uh, so, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure really concerned is necessarily the way I would describe um, the, my thinking about, you know, the human-related pressures in Antarctica, but it's certainly the case that um, tourism uh, numbers have been skyrocketing in some parts of Antarctica, the, the easy-to-access parts, and the fact that um, ice is melting just makes those regions more accessible. And I think, uh, you know, it, um, it's inevitable that, that human increased human presence in those regions will have effects on, uh, on the ecosystem. Um, and so, you know, and and then obviously things like plastic pollution um, are a concern for those regions as well. And so understanding how we can manage those different pressures in the context of climate change as this overarching driver, I think, will be particularly important. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about Homeward Bound, um, which is a project that you're a co-founder of, which has got a huge focus on... I believe the goal is supporting a thousand women in STEM over ten years. I'd love to learn a little bit more about that. <laughs> yeah, so Homeward Bound was the the vision of uh, Fabian Datner, who I worked with um, in the the early stages of getting that project off the ground. 
Um, and and it is a Australian-led international program that focuses around women in science and leadership and is about amplifying the voices of women in terms of using science to address um, the challenge of climate change particularly and given that female representation at senior levels in science and and in, in leadership generally is still so low. Um, Home and Bound was about trying to build a global network of women who could support each other in having more of a presence in that space. Um, and so it's it set against the backdrop of Antarctica and um, and practically speaking, Home and Bound has sent um, large um, shiploads of women on leadership journeys to Antarctica um, over successive years. And so I think we're up to voyage number five, which may be on hold because of COVID, but um, but about 100 each time. And if we do that for 10 years, then that's the that's the thousand women. But but actually it's create, I think just because it captures people's imaginations, um, it's, it's something that's kind of created waves and actually built a much bigger network than than the women that have actually been on the voyages um, and in fact there's a documentary um, that was filmed on the first homeward bound voyage that is being shown at the moment at the sydney film festival and tells some of the story of what homeward bound was trying to achieve and what some of the challenges were in in you know in bringing into reality a, a program like that What's the name of the film? Do you know, so we can keep an eye out for it. The leadership. So it's you can it's online at the moment, and I think until the twenty first of June, it's available for people to um, to access. You just pay a fee to rent it, I think. But I haven't I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a bit hard to find time around. Add it to your watch list. Looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds incredible and uh, absolutely so critical. So why don't you just um, yeah, talk a little bit more about the importance of, of women in leadership positions in STEM and the importance of diversity in decision-making? Mm. Yeah, so, I, you know, we know that diversity in so many contexts brings better outcomes because, you know, it provides flexibility in the way people think about solving problems um, and the different viewpoints that they can bring to the table. And so there is there's evidence that in, in research you get better outcomes, research outcomes with more diverse teams, and that's certainly the case, um, as I understand it, in, in business and in leadership more generally too. And so, you know, one of the motivating factors behind Homeward Bound was that we, you know, at, given the, the climate crisis, <laughs> um, we just can't afford to be missing close to half the voice in that decision-making process um, and that the rate at which things are changing, not not just for, for women in science but in terms of diversity and and equity, I guess, more generally, um, it's it's too slow and we just we can't afford that, um, that time. And the, one of the catchphrases that was developed for Homeward Bound was Mother Nature Needs Her Daughters. But, it, you know, Fabian was very interested in um, the, the way that um, women can bring a, a kind of caregiving perspective to how we interact with our, our planet and the, the ocean and, and places like Antarctica and, um, you know, the role of women as mothers and, and how we can bring that um, perspective more into 
um, the way we think about creating change to address global problems. And I think, you know, I, Jacinda Ardern is amazing. She, <laughs> I, I, I love seeing what she does and, um, and uh, you know, she's an incredible role model. But, um, but people like that and, this, and that really different style that they're able to bring. And I think it's not just women who can adopt that style, but um, we're, we're very used to, um, you know, uh, a less inclusive approach um, across many different areas and I think we we need to turn that around if we're going to um, act in time particularly on climate change um, I know that the, the at least the social media audience for OIO is is heavily skewed towards women um, not too sure on the podcast numbers but sort of what would you say I suppose to particularly you know, young women who are perhaps going through their academic journey or starting their, their careers, sort of what would you say to them or, or where would you steer them to, to really be able to feel um, thoroughly motivated that there's no barriers to their success? Yeah, I well, I, I think it would be uh, misinformation to say there are no barriers. There are still some important barriers, but I think you know, there's a lot of different initiatives that are, are, um, are, are building momentum to try to move those barriers. Um, but there's there's a lot of challenges that remain. I think um, I've I've seen evidence that COVID, for instance, has had a more significant impact on the rate at which women are submitting academic papers, which are really critical in terms of. Um, how we currently <laughs> recognise success and um, and um, career advancement. So, you know, there's still disproportionate effects of things like the pandemic um, on women. Um, but certainly building, building networks and um, seeking out role models and champions, I think, is a really important thing that individuals can do. Looking back on my Oxford experience, uh, as a Rhodes Scholar, I think I hadn't realised at the time, but one of the main issues for me there was that it was a very, still a very male-dominated space. Then, you know, this is back in um, 2003. I think things have, have been changing since then. But it's difficult when you can't see anyone around you um, who who has navigated barriers or who has has been there and learnt from. Um, those challenges so I think that's that's really important and I yeah having I, th I have a, a good degree of hope that that things are turning around and that and that for future generations we might actually see um, uh, you know equal opportunities that would be wonderful <laughs> certainly would yeah um, we spoke a little bit there about sort of COVID um, and and now I suppose this sort of re-emerging um, to a to a new normal. Maybe we could start to talk about you know your role with the IPCC, uh, the current state of the climate, um, and maybe even starting out by sort of I guess climate in the context of COVID. Uh, mm. Has it you know there's a lot of people out there with opinions. Do you <laughs> think it's been a good thing this disruption, this great pause? Um, yeah, maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, I have been really encouraged to see the way that through COVID science has played an important role, not everywhere, but I think, um, you know, certainly from, from what I have seen, people have listened to science, they have acted quickly on advice based on science and they have done that 
collaboratively in the most part and that and then have seen the benefits of doing that right so I think that's a really powerful demonstration of how things could look for the challenge of climate change although they're very different they're different cases in in many ways both global problems that but that are playing out over slightly different time scales um, so that's encouraging that we have seen reductions in emissions um, because of COVID and and changes in behaviours. Um, so that's another a, a, you know a positive thing in that it, we can see that it is possible to change behaviours and achieve outcomes like that. I've also seen COVID talked about as like a sliding doors moment for um, addressing climate change, and that now really actually is an opportunity to turn things around and to um, to, to press the reset button. I don't I, I don't have a clear vision of whether that actually can play out, but I would be hopeful that uh, that it can. Um, <laughs> and you know I think people it does seem that people are thinking slightly differently about issues um, you know like like the um, Black Lives Matter um, rallies and and the support that you know is being shown for those so you know, maybe there is a change in mentality where people are starting to um to think differently i, I don't know <laughs> um really appreciated seeing i mean even just the changing rhetoric in in celebrities for example talking now more than ever about this idea of interconnectedness um with nature and obviously intersectional environmentalism and people really starting to get a bit more of a picture, you know, a snapshot of the bigger picture, um, which is sort of entering the mainstream, which I think is is a good thing. Mm, absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. What about the IPCC then? Tell us a little bit about your your journey in in being a lead author with the IPCC. Um, you know, what sort of the the big takeouts from that, and and what should we be thinking about as we go into this next chapter of the human story? Yeah, I, I can try. <laughs> um, I've worked on uh, one of the, there were three special reports um, that the IPCC developed between its, it has these regular assessment cycles. So there was the fifth assessment report um, and then these three special reports and the, the sixth assessment report is currently in process. And the three special reports were on um, on climate change and land, um, on 1.5 degrees of warming and on um, the oceans and cryosphere and a changing climate. So I worked on the oceans and cryosphere one on the chapter on polar regions, um, but also had some contributions to that report's summary for policymakers, which is the you know the short, sharp version that captures the key elements and that is agreed by all the governments. Um, so it was a pretty interesting process just to be involved with and to um, have a better understanding of, um, I guess, the rigour that the IPCC uses in the report development and the, the number of drafts, the number of contributing authors, the number of reviewers um, and the approach that it uses for synthesising really large bodies of science into meaningful statements that end up in this summary for policymakers. So I learned a lot from being part of that process. <laughs> um, I guess the sobering thing is that, uh, you know, a lot of the findings from that special report that I 
worked on um, were um, more extreme than um, than previous reports. So we have a, a clearer picture um, that things are changing in many respects faster than we had thought previously and that the impacts that we will see play out, um, particularly in ocean environments over the coming decades are more severe, if anything, than we had thought before. Um, and so that means our, our window for uh, for acting and also for adapting to the changes that are already playing out is even smaller. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, I think, yeah, there, there's a lot of value in in those the summaries that are delivered in terms of providing advice to to the people that that need to act, but um, that but there's still the step to take in actually responding to that challenge. Just in sort of tying it back to that previous uh, question about COVID and that, mm. you know, we saw politicians standing up side by side next to leading scientists and we also saw that, you know what, when um, when politicians and when nations really want to act and act fast in the face of a dire predicament, then they can move mountains in minutes. So does that lend you to thinking... Is there something we're missing with the clear evidence of climate change and the impending doom? We all want to try and create the sense of urgency. Many of us have already already tried, but do you do you lend yourself to any thought about well, what is the what is the secret here? What is there anything we can learn from recent affairs that can somehow create that sense of urgency and and move things faster? Um. Uh, I think, you know, the power of bottom-up change is something that, you know, that the effect of in individual actions can have a, a an effect that's much bigger than the sum of the parts, you know. So the fact that everybody individually changed their behaviours in the case of COVID and, and that that had a, a really noticeable change on flattening the curve and on, um, on the impact from the pandemic, particularly here in Australia, you know, I think that's that's a really useful lesson in the context of climate change because um, through the various um, communication events that I've been involved in with around climate change, there's from the general public at least, I think there's often a like a feeling of helplessness that it it has to be you know what can individual actions achieve, um, you know, there's a, a need for um, action at the political level but um but i think you know on climate change individual actions actually really can have make a very meaningful um effect and so so you know i think there's some bridges to cross to to see that same strength of of the bottom-up effect for climate change but but maybe this experience has been empowering for people in that context i'm not i'm kind of skirting around your question a little bit and coming at it from the other angle <laughs> um but i yeah i think you know if in the everyday we can make the changes that are needed then maybe we can see cascading effects further up the chain yeah i think you're right and we need to we do need to focus on that because i guess for the cynics out there who've been you know, told that line about, you know, many millions of small actions make up to a big one, mm. it always felt 
potentially a little bit fluffy. And I mean, I'm a I'm an advocate for it, right? I I, I mm. brought up Take Three for the Sea and told people, hey, you can help plastic pollution by picking up three pieces of trash. Well, you know, I knew that the the goal there was just to build a movement of enough people that advocated for a better way of doing things. And so I think you're absolutely right. And whilst the the iron is still hot, where we've got a fresh memory that, hey, you know what, we did all band together to combat a single invisible enemy. Um, let's do it for the next one. I, I yeah. think it's really true. Um, so, no, I appreciate your perspective on that. Why don't we start to then um, sort of wrap up this conversation then? Um, I'd love to, I guess, think, talk a little bit about the future for you. You've got two young girls. You're, you know, you're in the, the year where you're um, awarded Tasmanian of the Year for 2020. Like, um, yeah, what do you have planned for the future? What can we, what can we expect to see from you um, next? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the girls being at the age where I can actually sleep in again every so often. <laughs> Someone said once they can make their own breakfasts, that's a real, that's a real. Then they can make you breakfast. <laughs> yeah, that's it. that would be nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, um, I, I'm a year into my role with Sara now, and so things are, are kind of really starting to settle in and and also kick off in lots of ways. So um, I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, lots lots happening um, in all aspects of life. I, I, you know, I haven't tended to have a fixed view of what what the next five to ten years would would have to have in store, and and I and that's that's worked okay for me <laughs> so far so I'm, I'm happy to to see how things evolve and I'd you know I'd, I'd in terms of the kids and what their futures might look like I oscillate a bit I guess sometimes I'm I'm worried and sad and um and and at other times I have you know a lot of hope that um that that those generations will do a better job than we've been able to of turning things around, and that I, you know, I do think that through education we can um, help future generations to be problem solvers, and I think that's going to be a key part of of the future looking better. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try and I'm trying to do that in my own little way, teach people, teach children to be problem solvers. I love it. Um, <laughs> well, we'll wrap things up there. I'm going to leave it to you to touch on anything that you wanted to talk about today in the podcast um, and then wind up with a little bit of a spiel about how people can find out more about your work and your role or follow your journey. No, I'm, I'm just relieved that um, those escapee goats that we talked about before you started recording have, have stayed put <laughs> for the last hour and I had to run off and... We're going to need to provide context now. So before we start the podcast, <laughs> Jess advised that she'd had some rogue goats that got out of the pen and the dogs were going a bit haywire. So she expected she'd have to run out the door any minute uh, into the wind and rain, but all good. All so good. Any closing words? And where can people follow you or find out more, Jess? Oh, I'm, um, I hadn't prepared to <laughs> stop <laughs> I'm on the if you you know if you Google Jess Melbourne Thomas Sarah you can find out about me I'm on I'm on um, Twitter um, at the moment I'm encouraging people to um, make nominations for the the next round of the Australian of the Year 
awards. Um, it, I think it's been a year where so many people have stepped above and beyond and we've seen pretty incredible courage and resilience and leadership and strength. So, um, and it's been an amazing opportunity for me this year um, to be part of that program. So, um, yeah, check out, I guess that's my, my final little pitch, check out nominating for the Australian of the Year Awards if you think can think of someone that's done something amazing. Awesome, Jess. Well, thank you so much for your time. You go and check on those goats and we look forward to working with you more in the future. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you. Bye.